what are your top three Southern songs? Oh, this is a good question. I would say top three Southern songs, Fancy by Reba, Heads Carolina, Tales California by Jody Messina. Wait, mine is and also Jody Messina. I love Jody Messina. Honestly, where where has she been? Bring her back. Um, Bring her back. And she's in love with the boy by Trissy Trisha Yearwood. Wow. Who's married to Garth Brooks? You know that, I right? I know. I know. I think mine would be number one, Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> <laughs> Oh just, my god. People can't not dance when the Cotton Eye Joe comes on. You know how it is. Second would be Lesson and Leave In by Jody Messina. That's a real heartbreak banger. Every time I go through a breakup, I'm like, here she comes. I get Jody's it. I get it. Back. And my third one is you talking with your southern accent. <laughs> I hope everyone on this that listens to this podcast enjoys my southern accent as much as you do lex that's all i can ask my little accent i got an accent i'm lexi and I'm Lane. And this is My Therapist Told Me, the podcast where we unpack our lives and encourage you to do the same. Hey, Lex. <laughs> hey, Lane. How are you today? Oh, you know, thriving and surviving. How are you? I'm doing well. It's not as beautiful in New York as it was last week. It's a little rainy and gloomy. So fits the mood for the topic today, I feel like. Oh, gosh. Yeah. It's going to be a hard one, but I think it's important that we talk about it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Lexi, tell me what you know about internalized homophobia. Oof. Yeah. To be candid, I don't I don't know a ton. I feel like what I'm familiar with is the idea that sometimes people who are gay turn towards internalized homophobia as a way to show to the world that they aren't actually gay like a sort of a form of self-preservation so that they aren't seen as having this what some people may call as like a weakness or something like that but that's really the extent of my knowledge I'm not super informed on this topic so I'm excited to hear all that you have to say yeah, that was actually a really good summary of a lot of <laughs> I want to talk about. So we're going to pick through some of that throughout today's episode as Perfect. we talk about this topic. Uh, okay. But knowing that this topic is tough for a lot of people and some of the stories that we'll share today um, and unpack will be a little tough. I just want to start and let you know that take care of yourself. Um, if you feel uncomfortable listening to the parts of this podcast, feel free to skip forward um, or move past it. But some parts of this story uh, do include discussions around conversion therapy, religious trauma, and homophobia. So Lexi and I encourage you to take care of yourself and listen again to only what you're comfortable. So Lex, we know that you're a research queen. 
So I decided to do a little bit of research and delve a little bit into academia today so we could talk about internalized homophobia. Uh, it's a very heavy topic, so I wanted to be sure that whatever I said was actually backed up by research and was not just something that I had experienced personally. So to get started, internalized homophobia is defined as the gay person's direction of negative social attitudes toward the self. It was coined by professors Meyer and Dean in their 1998 study of intimacy among gay and bisexual men. But the term has slowly evolved to represent something larger than just gay and bisexual men. So now it really applies to all queer people. Um, and so it's something that matter is your gay, lesbian, trans, bisexual, simply identify as queer. It's something that you can absolutely experience. But overall, in simpler terms, it's essentially when queer people take societal norms and inflict them upon themselves, making, you know, you feel uncomfortable, making themselves feel uncomfortable with who they are uh, as people. Research shows that internalized homophobia starts at a very young age, right around the time that a child feels they might not be straight. Uh, wow. So as gay children, you start to look to cues around you. So when we talk about media representation, this is actually really huge mm -hmm. because however you know, gay uh, or trans or queer people are represented in the media can ultimately influence how we treat ourselves and our own identities. Things like news and the television uh, or TV shows and movies and also the friends that our parents have and the relationships that they have with queer people. We use all of this information, absorb it, and start to draw conclusions about how we will be perceived if we were to not be straight. So I have a question for you. So you said that this typically happens in children around the age when they start to kind of question that sexuality. Do you know around what age that typically is for people or when that was for you? Yeah, Lex, this is a great question because this is the first question I was going to ask you. Oh, so no! There is, <laughs> there is some research around the age that most people do realize that they are some form of queer. And so mm -hmm. with that being said, Lex, what age do you think that most gay or lesbian people realize that they aren't straight? Okay. This is going to sound crazy, but I feel like I've read this before. Is it five years old? It's a little later in research. Okay. But it's at 12 years old. Oh, that's way the, later. The <laughs> Where did I read it? Five. I think that there is this, honestly, this research was a little dated. It's maybe like okay. 10 years old now, a little under 10 years old now. So I think naturally we've seen a lot of societal shift within the last 10 years let's say so yeah. the age could slowly be skewing lower mm -hmm. but right now the the typical average is 12 years old wow gosh what a hard period of your life too 12 years old oh my gosh i feel like <laughs> i remember being 12 and that was such a bad weird time to be experiencing things <laughs> it's such a weird time to experience things naturally but then especially i know i came out to my mom the first time when I was in seventh grade. So right around 11 or 12 years old. So yeah. not only to be experiencing that, but I just transferred to public school and to, to pile all of these experiences on top of it only makes it that much more confusing. Yeah. 
that makes sense. So, Lex, if the time that most people realize they're not straight, let's say, is around the age of 12, what age do you think someone is when they finally confide in at least one person about their sexuality? Oh, wow. That's a great question. My initial instinct is to say like 17 or 18 when they're about to leave high school and potentially, you know, start a job or go to college and not have to worry about the same group of people that they've been having to deal with. So I I think I want to say 17 or 18. You hit the nail right on the head. Yay! The current average age for someone to have realize that they aren't straight and to have confided in at least one person about it is 17. So we're talking about that gap though, as most kids are discovering that, you know, they're queer when they're 12 years old, but then they're not telling anyone about it until 17 on average, which is five years of a lot of influence, especially you're starting high school and moving through that and starting to watch more and more or consume more and more media. And so there's a lot happening, which is, you know, very critical, like a very critical and and formative moment within your life. That must be so lonely too. That those five years of feeling like it's a secret almost. That's a really hard, that's a long time to keep that. Yeah. Which is why I think too, and you know, me and Dua Lipa, I think a lot of kids, (laughs) a lot of gay men, especially will latch on to these very public figures who have shown that they will Mm -hmm. accept them or or look to someone in the media to help them form a healthier relationship with themselves so (laughs) uh for instance one of the the first things um, that came to mind when i was thinking through this was how i used to watch the golden girls with my mom and in that show is actually a very positive representation of gay and lesbian people. And that it always gave me this like reassurance in the back of my mind for some reason that like that would mean that I could also be gay and be in a Southern family and, you know, have this relationship in the same way. Um, but meanwhile, which we'll unpack a little later, you know, that's not necessarily my story. So, right. you know, that's I'm getting back to my point now and saying like gay men latching on to these very public pop culture figures uh, kind of allows us to try to fight some of that internalized homophobia that's like happening within. Who would you say are some of those current figures right now? Figures for like kids. Yeah. Like I was going to say, is it like Lady Gaga and like Ariana and those kinds of people? I think Lady Gaga was definitely one for me, at least. Uh, thinking back, like when you heard Born This Way, how could you not just like think it was an absolute bop? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, true. and beyond being a bop, like the words ring so true. So mm-hmm. I would say Lady Gaga, uh, if I'm being honest, Dua does a lot of work um, for LGBTQ plus she people. Um, she does. But she's newer. She newer. wasn't around for you. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and also, you know, one that's, definitely past my generation but i don't don't want to dismiss at all it is like jojo siwa dance mom mm-hmm. icon and now she's you know an owl lesbian with a girlfriend so there's you know very much like that representation okay. that's happening oh absolutely but i was thinking of like queen share i just feel like she was like before our age but 
gosh she's so iconic i love her we can cut this out too i just anytime i can talk about Cher, i just want to <laughs> you know i personally believe that Cher is the greatest icon that our generation and any generation before and after will ever see in our lives personally so with that being said i definitely think <laughs> that there are you know past people like even freddie mercury and elton john and all of yeah. these other people who were you know very out and proud Brittany, Brittany you know like there's Brittany's not out well but. I mean she kissed Madonna but she's amazing VMAs, like let's be real um yeah. but I think there are definitely all of these people out there that we can look to like as queer people and be like oh I can find myself here and like you know with you and it's like mm. even Dolly Parton in one of her interviews years and years and years ago but basically somebody asked something about her makeup and does she feel like she wears too much and does too much with her hair and her nails and she was like no i'm very happy with who i am and all i can say is if god would have made me a man i would have been drag queen so oh my there are little moments like that that also very much heavily influence you know like people's feelings towards good people and yeah. that's why i think a lot of us latch on to people like that yeah so Transitioning back, we just talked about how most gay and lesbian people was what this most recent research was showing, discover that they're not straight around the age of 12. And then by 17, typically they're sharing it with someone in their life. A lot of queer people, if you're listening to this podcast, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That initially initial discovery that you just might not be the same as everyone around you. And in that moment, you start to look outside of yourself from some sort of reassurance that you're okay. For a lot of queer people, though, that reassurance never really comes. So Lex, even today, thinking 2022, how or what percentage of LGBTQ people live in places that are non-affirming in just the U.S. and just the U.S.? I mean, I feel like it's got to be at least 50%. That's a little high. So it's 30%. Really? Yeah. Okay. I, uh, I'm i shocked. I feel like we're getting better, but America has a lot, long way to go before we get to a place where everyone feels safe. So. Oh, absolutely. I think that we still have a lot of progress to be made, but this year that it's only 30%. So we're talking a little less than a third of, of queer people are in places that aren't necessarily safe, which is probably mm. drastically less than what it was even 20 years ago. Does that mean, sorry, this is a personal clarif- clarification. Is that like their actual homes or like their cities, their schools? What is that? That's what a that really good question. The re- I don't know. Where I read this, it just said places. It just described as places. I'm going to assume that means homes. Yeah, because I think a lot more than thirty percent of America would be non-affirming. Yeah, that's what I was thinking when you think about states. Like, I just feel like there's so many places where people would not feel comfortable. But yeah, okay, thank you. So I would say like thirty percent of homes. Yeah. So yeah, even today in the U.S., estimated that roughly. 30%, little less than a third of queer people live in places that are non-affirming, meaning that the people around them wouldn't accept who they are. So this leads to quite a bit of internal to- turmoil 
thinking, you know, who do I go to? Who can I talk to? Where can I turn? What happens next for me? And the feelings that we see expressed around us begin to influence the way that we perceive ourselves that we're not good enough, which can greatly affect our mental health and lead to lots of irrational and even dangerous behaviors. So for all of you people out there, you know what those might look like for you or for other queer people that you know, you might know what it looks like in practice. And so it's easy to fall into the age old trope of the gay kids bully. You know, the one where you say, oh, he did that because he's also gay and doesn't want anyone to else think he is. But for the average gay kid like me, I was the one being bullied and none of my bullies in school ever came out. So I don't believe that they were gay at the time. So I want to focus on what it looks like, uh, yeah, for the average gay kid. And also bullies don't deserve any of our attention. Okay. Uh, no bullies on the pod. Get out of here. So there are a few different ways that internalized homophobia typically shows up in people. The first mm -hmm. is that people will deny their sexual orientation both to themselves and others. So they either never come out of the closet or only come out to select people. And a lot of this is just because they don't feel like they would be accepted. And it is thundering outside really loudly now. So I hope <laughs> the podcast does not pick that up. <laughs> I can't hear it. Okay. No, I can't hear it. So a lot of people will just never come out of the closet or can only come out to select people. Uh, I remember this early on for me, but I, you know, started coming out. Uh, and I'm going to save a lot of the story until later, but I denied my sexual orientation so much, especially when the rumors start swirling and you're a little 12 year old boy. And that's the last thing you're really want to think about. Oftentimes people struggling with internalized homophobia will keep any same gender relationships a total secret. So they will have private relationships that they don't broadcast and they really force their partner into the closet as well. They can also, you know, believe that they or other same gender sexual relationships are bad or wrong and they members of the queer community. But some of the more extreme behaviors that you could see uh, in people struggling with internalized homophobia is that they can be really uncomfortable around queer identifying people. So they should typically try to avoid them. They don't want to see be seen in spaces with them. And on top of that, kind of on the other side, they'll engage in very unhealthy or risky behaviors, including substance abuse, eating disorders, or more private intimate affairs with people that they probably shouldn't be engaging with. So overall, just lots of behaviors yeah. that see uh, that are really all informed by this internalized homophobia. So Lex, in listing these, I could see where a lot of them were true for me at the, at a young age, I would constantly deny the rumors that I was gay and I thought it was helping me, you know, turn back to the Lord as my very Southern mother would say. I remember having family friends who had a gay <laughs> nephew with a partner. And my parents were clear that it was wrong, but thinking about that resentment, I hated him. I thought that there was something completely wrong with him and was mad that he was able to live this life that I thought was inherently wrong. So ultimately, this internalized homophobia or even queerphobia, as we can call it, 
can weigh us down and prevent um, you know us as queer people from reaching our full potential. So Lex, thinking about this topic and, and everything I've shared so far, what are your initial feelings? Yeah, I mean, this is just something that I know is something that you struggled with a lot and hearing you say it, I think first and foremost, I'm just so proud that you're here today and able to talk about it. I think that's a real testament to how you've pursued your most authentic self throughout your life and your vulnerability and being able to share these. But I think on a bigger scale, I'm just, I'm just sad. I'm just sad that, I don't know, I'm just wondering, you know, what we can do as a society or what I can do as an individual to try and make that better because it just seems like a really hard situation to be in. Yeah, I think one of the best ways to really just be a, an ally to someone who might tell is struggling a bit with this internalized homophobia is just to allow yourself to be a safe space for them. Open yourself up, talk about clear issues, you know, really let them know um, and send them signals that you're there for them. I know early on in our friendship, I, I don't know how soon it was, but I'm pretty sure I came out to you almost instantly. It could be when you were standing on the ladder singing show tunes, but... I might have just been signaling it to everyone else <laughs> and they picked up on <laughs> But I know I certainly know that, Lex, you have a lot of the behaviors down to give people the same space to, to be who they are. And so um, I just encourage anyone listening, do you think that someone might be struggling um, with their sexuality and this level of internalized homophobia, just send them signals. Let them know that, you know, that you, that you are a safe space and, and be like the lighthouse in the night that they can come, you know, wandering to. Wow, so uh, cheesy. <laughs> so cheesy. I love, I love speaking metaphor. You know this. I think you like nautical metaphors because last time during our attachment, episode you said two ships passing in the night and now you're talking about lighthouses so maybe your thing is nautical metaphors <laughs> nautical metaphors i'm dead i'm i what if it is nautical metaphors i really love the ocean in the first episode in our intro episode i talked about how much i love the beach that's true oh my gosh okay We're, we'll keep track of it from here on out I'm gonna start taking little notes of every time I <laughs> like a little say something note. nautical. Yeah, sticking yeah. on your screen that's like, don't say nautical metaphors. <laughs> so thinking about this topic of internalized homophobia, I wanted to take some time to share a bit of my story and how it's affected me in my life. Some parts of this story will include discussions around conversion therapy, religious trauma, and homophobia. So again, Lexi and I encourage you to take care of yourself and only listen to what you feel comfortable. So Lex knows I grew up in a very small, conservative town um, with parents who were Southern Baptists. My parents were caring and kind people, but even the smallest things like interracial marriage were tough for them when I was very young. So with that, any sort of queer identity was also not going to be accepted. At a young age, I'd say around 10, I noticed that something was a little different with me. 
I started noticing the boys in my class rather than the girls. And if you remember the beloved High School Musical, you know Troy Bolton. Yes, Troy. It was Troy Bolton. Shout out Troy Bolton. You were my first celebrity crush. <laughs> and it was very natural for me um, to feel that at the time. From the pulpit to the classroom at my private Christian school to my hall, it was reinforced constantly that being gay was never okay. Uh, and at the time, aside from the pop icons that I have latched on to, I didn't really know where to turn. I started internalizing, as we say, a lot of this, a lot of these attitudes towards me, what I had been perceived was wrong. And with that, I chose to share this news with my mom that I was different. I was, I was very much a mama's boy. I'm still a mama's boy. So I thought that that was going to be my safe space, my, my first way out. But next thing I know, I was going to church for private sessions, my pastor to rid me of a lot of these feelings. If we fast forward a bit, I transferred to public school. I still had this awareness that I was different, so I chose who I shared it with. I had a couple of close friends at the time, thought that they were going to always be there for me, thought they would always be my closest friends. Uh, so again, uh, telltale sign of internalized homophobia, sharing it with very select people, and I would choose to make them swear to secrecy. And then in high school, after years of sharing, again, only with very select people um, and trying to get rid of my feelings, unfortunately, I was outed. And so this made me not only hate myself um, and the people around me, but also a lot of good people because it made me feel that I would always be a target. And so it, it made me very uncomfortable. Um, so I started throwing myself into everything that I was thought was masculine and therefore would be safe for me. So this included a couple of clubs. I was in in high school. I was in church groups and going on mission trips. So a lot of this was my way of deflecting. Finally, in college, I started coming out to people who I knew were accepted. I'm curious. I'm guessing that you didn't recognize that you were doing these things at the time. When did you realize that what you were doing was internalized homophobia? That's a really great question. I don't think I realized what was really happening until I came out. I started going to a very affirming church in Raleigh and started my journey with therapy. And that's when I realized that a lot of these behaviors were all some sort of internalized homophobia, like dyslexia or, you know, not wanting to engage with queer issues or anything like that. So yeah, I would definitely say it was, you know, like sophomore year, uh, but that's when I started coming out to people who I knew would be accepting. I started finding my own spaces um, with people who would love me no matter what. And I built a solid foundation for myself. And when I finally chose to come out to my parents for the third time, uh, it still backfired, but I had built that solid foundation for me with people who I knew were affirming. Life is meaningful, eh? Oh my gosh. I was just going to say, I remember this moment as a very important piece of our college journey together. And I, I just remember how it went down and it was just, it was awful to see you have to go through that. So 
Yeah, but I had people like you no. there for me. So when it all came, you know, tumbling down, I still had that foundation. And I found those people who had signaled themselves to me as allies in the space. Uh, but yeah, so I had people like you who were there for me. So I, I built that foundation and, you know, had someone who had signaled themselves to me, but they were a safe space. And that allowed me to you know, keep moving forward and, and help me find myself within this newfound, like, out identity. What, I know we've talked about being a safe space for people. What do you feel like you needed from other people that made them feel safe? I really think that it, it's some sort of outward expression of your love for all people. Mm -hmm. So for instance, one of my professors in college, who I came out to pretty early on, was a an advocate through the GLBT Center at Edson State. So had a rainbow pie flag on their door and like one on their water bottle. And it's just like a very easy way to, again, I keep saying the word signal, but just like the, the tiniest things like that. But then also when you're talking with people and you can say that, you know, and have a gay friend and speak very highly of them or, you know, you're sharing my story and like it, it becomes like irrelevant that the friend was gay and it was just like funny or, you know, heartfelt or whatever it may be. It's just an easy way to, to say it without having to directly say it. Gotcha. Thank you. Oh, after high school and after coming out to people at college, I started dating my now fiance. And it became pretty obvious in our relationship and in our time together that I had some issues that I needed to work on. And that started coming up because, again, going back to that, like, insecurity around other queer people, it was one of the first ways that I felt really weird in our relationship because going out to gay bars was not something that I was interested in. They're going to drag shows and it... it even simply watching RuPaul's Drag Race, I never would have imagined doing that three years ago. And I think a lot of it was because of this internalized homophobia. Like I didn't want to be the norm. And so I was very insecure about my sexuality. And so a lot of this led to little tiny arguments with us when I was insecure that he was talking to some other gay man or, you know, doing something at at work with the pride resource group and I was scared that something would happen between us. And, uh, so a lot of it, a lot of this internalized homophobia was the, the start of our, you know, early fights with that. I finally started therapy and I initially started it to work on other things like body image, positive self-talk, the relationships I have with my family. And I felt that all of these were the issues that would cure what I was feeling, uh, especially when we were in the middle of those fights. But in reality, the core of my problem, the thing that I realized was causing all of this for me, both internally and within my relationships, was internalized homophobia. Wow. That's a, that's a big thing to uncover, I feel like, when you think it's going to be these other things and then it links back to something different. So I wanted to work on a lot of these things and that's what I was like, oh, this is absolutely not my problem. Like, I need to feel better about my body and I need to 
better my relationship with my parents and I to talk better, you know, about myself. But ultimately at the core of the issue, uh, yeah, was this internalized homophobia. And it took weeks to unpack. Okay. My therapist and I talked about like metaphors. Like when I say I'm speaking metaphors, we talked a lot in metaphor. And so a lot of this you realize is like, as if you were walking into a messy room and you looked at the first two things or two or three things that you could find and be like, oh, if I just move those out of the way, it'll make the whole room better. But that's not necessarily the case. Oftentimes we have to put stuff in different places and put stuff in drawers and rearrange and make the room feel neater. And so that's what I slowly did. And I realized that as I was picking up a lot of these, you know, messy objects, and putting them somewhere else, kind of compartmentalizing them, taking care of them and putting them away, I was able to discover that the real root of the problem was not those first couple of problems I saw as soon as I walked in. That was great. But do you think you can do it again in a nautical metaphor? I'm just kidding. <laughs> this is, I, you know, I probably could. You walk into a ship. There could no. be a hundred ships in a room. Stop. Stop. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> Wait, did you catch the Lady Gaga reference there? Yeah, yeah. There could be a bunch ships our, in our room. Coming back to our um, our Lady Gaga, our pop icons. Oh my God, yeah. yeah. So you've started talking a little bit about the things that you talked about with your therapist, but I'm interested to hear more about what she told you. Yeah, for sure. So. There were a couple of things that I started working on with my therapist that helped me work through a lot of this internalized homophobia. So as I was saying a little earlier, start with the root of the issues and try to untangle the mess. Don't, you know, find yourself being stuck at the top thinking that, you know, one little thing is is the problem start peeling back some of those layers and truly try to get to the core of your issue and so that's what i did throughout my time in therapy uh, so because in, in some of my lower moments i found myself really upset and i wouldn't know why i just knew that i was upset and it would typically come after i got off the phone with my parents or i had been scrolling on social media for too long and I'd really redirect this anger and frustration toward my relationship with Andrew. And it was completely unwarranted or unprompted. I could never describe what I was feeling. I didn't know why I was feeling a certain way. I just knew that I was, you know, upset. In therapy, while I was actively working on some of those days, it was important to be, you know, headfirst, like diving headfirst like into some of these problems and not being scared to peel back some of those layers. It took me months to get comfortable, right? So I'm not saying it happens overnight at all, but I am saying that being able to get down to the root, which in my case was an unaffirming family and so many layers of religious trauma and start untangling that, I was able to start articulating, you know, what I was feeling and my issues with Andrew and, and start behaviors that helped me move past a lot of it quicker. And that ultimately allowed me to, you know, over time, become a lot more comfortable with, you know, who I was, because once I had got all of those messy pieces out of the way, I could walk from one end of my room to the other, you know, thinking metaphorically in my mind. How can people stay courageous in this journey to get from that messy room to the clean room? <laughs> yeah, I think that 
not getting discouraged when things don't click instantly. Mm -hmm. So giving yourself the space to process a lot of this because I had many a nights at therapy where I shed some tears and I felt a little defeated afterwards because I was like, there's so many things wrong with me, but uh, this is going to like thinking of some of my later points, like knowing that none of that is necessarily chin that you're, you know, unpacking and make sure you give yourself space, meditate, do yoga, practice some sort of self-care that allows you to step out of that room and be able to re-enter it, you know, in the coming weeks um, and months that you go through therapy. The next thing that my therapist and I talked about um, was to stop using social media as a comparison and sign ways that we can unwind in the evenings or in the mornings when we're getting our day started. When I say this, it sounds kind of basic. Uh, everybody says to not compare yourself to those who see on social media, but for queer people, especially gay men, it's easy to find the hashtag instagays with the perfect bodies and hair, teeth, feel like you're not valid in your own identity because you don't have the perfect six pack or, you know, perfect hair and going on these lavish vacations. You're still valid as who you are. Um, I'm just here to say it very loud and clear that queer people come in all shapes and sizes and forms and the queerness is not have to fit into any nice little crate box in order for it to be valid. So, with that, don't let social media weigh you down in your own intensity. Find other ways that you can unwind um, in the evenings or get your day started uh, in order to, you know, allow yourself to have a healthier relationship with who you are. Yeah, social media sucks. But in the meantime, follow us at My Therapist Told Me Pod on Instagram. <laughs> There's a solid way that you can curate your you know, see, and like, if, if you're looking at For sure. like certain people, like there were influencers that I chose to unfollow because I knew mm. that I was doing too much comparing myself with it and, you know, saying that like, yes. I didn't have a perfect body or like, I don't have, you know, the perfect teeth and all of these things. Like I chose to actively start curating my feet so that way I could see what I wanted. And now I get duly this post every single morning. The first thing I see when I log into Instagram. So love it. Yeah, no, I feel like I've been doing a lot of that lately as well. Um, during college, I did this thing where every Thursday I would go on and unfollow people who made me feel bad about myself, whether it was something they had said or done to me or people that I just was acquaintances with but felt like I had to follow them just to follow the inherent rules of social media and just like purifying my timeline really made me feel much better about interacting with social media and even now I hate like the term influencers and like thinking about being an influencer or anything like that it really stresses me out but I've been following really intentional I don't even know if I would call them influencers, maybe content creators, mm -hmm. just like another side of the influencer <laughs> coin, but following people who are like, yeah, this is my real body. This is what I look like when I'm sitting down. Like, this is what my house looks like on days when it's not clean, like people who are just real. And I feel like that's the healthiest interaction that I have with social media. Yeah, I totally hear you. And I don't want to 
spoil anything we might be talking about in the future, but one of my favorite people to follow right now is Lizzo because especially with her shapewear line, like she shows her body, she shows her curves, she talks about, you know, who she is and how she embraces it. And I think like being able to curate your feed to see stuff like that, if you really want to stick with social media is super important. Yeah, I agree. Love it. So the last thing that my therapist and I talked about is going to also sound super cliche, but it was just treating myself a lot kinder. And so this goes, you know, speaks to the other two things. Uh, so, you know, when I felt really discouraged after therapy, it felt like the weight of the world was on my shoulders, being very kind to myself and giving myself space to, to recharge and reset before I walked out of the room and, and you know, went back and sat beside Andrew on the couch. And then also with social media, where I saw stuff, being able to stop myself from actively comparing by curating my feed or giving myself a daily limit. But ultimately, there are so many people who will tell you to treat yourself kinder. It's something we try to do to ourselves, but oftentimes we fail to launch. Um, it's something that we want to do, but never really get there. And so enacting behaviors that allow you uh, to make an active effort of saying nicer things to yourself and giving yourself a little you know, space. So one of the things that I started doing was writing a kind thing to myself within my agenda. I have one little space for it, my custom agenda layout where I write something about myself that's kind and I leave it there. And every day I would go back and I would wake up for work and I would open my agenda and I would read it to myself. And it just... Um, yeah, it's like a little love letter to yourself. And it allowed me to to get through some of those tougher moments. And now I can flip back through my agenda and see all of the things that I've written that are about myself that are kind. So yeah. Oh my gosh. I think I'm gonna start doing that. I I love that idea. Yeah. If there's there's one thing I will say, it allowed me to also become creative with my compliments to myself because I made an active effort not to reuse any of them. So you know, like the oh. weeks that I might not go to the gym or work out as much, uh, like, you know, I would have a little note in there and that would just like say like, I am strong. And so, you know, a couple of weeks later when I took another week off from the gym, it was just like coming up <laughs> with a new one to like, you know, not say the same things. So now I have, yeah. I don't know how many weeks we are into this year, but I probably have, you know, 30 little confidence to myself. So Lex. Thinking about what we've talked through today, I'm curious, what are some of your big takeaways? First of all, your therapist is a smart woman. <laughs> I fully agree. She's fantastic. <laughs> I like I like the tips that she gave you. I think my biggest takeaway, especially listening to you and you know, these last few minutes talk about your own personal journey, I think I'm just learning that this is a hard process. Like you've said, it's not something that changes overnight. It's not that one day you have internalized homophobia and the next day you don't. It's an ongoing thing that you have to continue to work through and that you need the correct support system to help you through that as well. So I think, you know, from someone who didn't experience this from an outside perspective, it can feel daunting. It can feel like it's a big time commitment and it's a lot of work that you have to put in seeing who you are now and seeing the healthy relationship that you have with your loving partner I think it just proves that 
it's worth it that it's a lot of hard work but it's worth it because it makes you a healthier version of yourself and it makes you a version of yourself who can pursue the things that they really want and I think you know what is there to the human experience if we're not pursuing what we want wow that was so beautiful set <laughs> thank you what about you Lane? anything else you want to add all I can say is I think you should go to therapy I agree we'll see you in therapy <laughs>